welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am going to respond in this episode to an email that I got from a listener who is a member of the Chicago Teachers Union. And this person asked if Louise Bryant and Alexandra Kolontai ever knew each other. So Louise Bryant was a kind of controversial independent woman at the turn of the century, and she spent a lot of time with John Reed in Russia around the time of the revolution. And so, it, in fact, the answer to this question is yes, Kolontai and Louise Bryant did know each other. And in Bryant's 1923 book, Mirrors on Moscow, she actually has a profile of Alexandra Kolontai. And I've decided that for this episode, I'm going to read a a part of of this chapter of, uh, it's called Madame Alexandra Kolontai and the Women's Movement. It's just, it's an interesting first person account of Alexandra Kolontai by an American who happened to be in Russia at the time, moving in these sort of upper Bolshevik echelons right at the time of the revolution. So before I jump in and read that, I just wanted to make a couple of quick announcements. I think in the last episode, I mentioned that my article with Le Monde Diplomatique about the Red Grandmothers uh, came out in July, on July 1st, June 30th and July 1st. It was out in French and English. I'm very happy to announce that it has also been translated into Spanish and German, and it's, you know, making its way around the world. I also did a podcast with Le Monde Diplomatique in English. And it's a full episode just about the article and about the research that went into talking about some of these socialist women during the UN decade for women. I will link to that podcast in the show notes for this episode. It was great opportunity to kind of talk a little bit about the history of socialist women's activism in the United Nations during the Cold War. And I'm really pleased that the article has been getting some good reception My book, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, I believe has just come out in Portuguese. So if you are listening from Brazil, you should be able to pick up a copy of that book. And the other weird thing that happened is my book, Taking Stock of Shock, Social Consequences of the 1989 Revolutions, that just came out on July 9th officially. And we got our first review in the strangest of places, the American conservative reviewed the book, a woman named Helen Andrews, and she surprisingly gave it a positive review. So I'm not exactly sure how that happened, but uh, I think in the book, my colleague Mitchell Orenstein and I are quite critical of the Clinton administration and quite critical of the Democrats in the 90s. And perhaps that's why the American conservative (laughs) decided that they more or less liked the book. So if you're interested in reading that, I'll also leave a link in the show notes to, to that. So lots, uh, lots of things that are going on, but for the mean, in the meantime, I'm going to read to you, uh, Madam Alexandra Kolontai and the woman's movement written by Louise Bryant published in her book mirrors on Moscow in 1923. All right, here it goes. Madame Alexandra Kolontai believes that everything which exalts is good, 
Being a feminist, she exalts women. She tells women that they are capable of a new freedom, beautiful and unexampled. She is so carried away by her enthusiasm that she is unmindful of how easily wings are broken in this age of steel. But if her inspiration, which aims to lift women to the skies, lifts them only from their knees to their feet, there will be nothing to regret. Civilization, in its snail-like progress, is only stirred to move its occasional inch by the burning desire of those who will to move it a mile. And when faith is pure enough, it does not demand realization. Kolontai is like a sculptor working on some heroic figure of woman and always wondering a little why the slim, inspired, unmaternal figure of her dreams is forever melting back into a heavy, earthy figure of Eve. It often happens that a character is best portrayed by conversations which show the manner of mind. In this chapter, I have quoted Madame Kollontai at some length because she is the only articulate voice of the new order for women, which has been so greatly misunderstood outside of Russia. That order which claims that by consecrating oneself to the state, one lives truer to oneself and to others. As a champion of her sex, she cries to the women of Russia, Cast off your chains. Do not be slaves to religion, to marriage, to children. Break these old ties. The state is your home. The world is your country. And who are the women she thus extols? They are the women of the factories and the fields, the women who sweep the streets, who scrub, who carry heavy burdens, who plow and weave and drudge. Will they be able to follow her to such heights? By our logic, no. But Kollontai preaches a new logic for Russia. Besides, we must consider what she means by casting off chains. I have heard her say all this another way, and it did not sound so lofty or impossible. To an individualist, it did not even sound attractive. Last summer, she admonished a women's congress in this manner. We must build a new society in which women are not expected to drudge all day in kitchens. We must have in Russia community restaurants, central kitchens, central laundries, institutions which leave the working women free to devote her evenings to instructive reading or recreation. Only by breaking the domestic yoke will we give women a chance to have a richer, happier, and more complete life. The material which Kolontai is so passionately attempting to mold is the peasant mind. It seems to me that peasant women are naturally slow-moving and stolidly honest and will accept only as much of Kolontai's philosophy as they find compatible with or necessary to the immediate situation, not because they are lacking in spirituality, for they are capable of deep religious fervor, but simply because much of it would be inharmonious and artificial to their normal development. At present, her mission is to awaken them so that they may build a truth of their own, which need by no means be a lesser truth than Kolontai's. If she attempts to make them swallow her formula intact, she will certainly fail. If she compromises as Lenin compromises, and as Kalinin does, she will perform for Russia a never-to-be-forgotten task. Today, everything has been melted down in the crucible of the revolution." 
The only banner bearer who counts is the one who will give to the great mass of those emerging into the new day the broad, fundamental things of life. Madame Kolontai is the only woman who has ever been a member of the Russian cabinet. She puts forth the argument that women have more conscience than men and therefore do not attempt to obtain offices which they are not fitted for by previous training, and that this is the reason women's influence is so slight in Russia today. But her history refutes her theory. She herself was particularly fitted for the position of Minister of Welfare. Her record was splendid. She lost her post because she was a woman and allowed her love for her husband to interfere with her political judgment. Early in 1918, Madame Kolontai, who was the widow of a Tsarist officer, married Fyodor Dubenko, the picturesque leader of the turbulent Kronstadt sailors. Actually, Dubenko's first name, I believe, is Pavel, so it's kind of interesting here that she has Fyodor, but nevertheless, I'm just reading what uh, Bryant has written. Back to Bryant. Dubenko is a handsome, daring young man, some years her junior. Actually, I think I think Dubenko might have been 16 years younger than Kolontai, but I have to double check that. But she was quite older than he was. All right. Sorry for the interruptions. Shortly after the wedding, Dubenko was arrested. He had entrusted certain ships under his command to officers of the old regime who had pretended loyalty to the Soviets, but who had turned the ships over to the Germans without a struggle. Certainly, Dubenko had no intention of betraying the revolution. He was merely trying to make use of skilled officers of whom there was a pressing dearth. Nevertheless, he was held responsible. While he was in prison awaiting trial, Kolontai made rather violent and conspicuous protests, both publicly and privately. As a result, she was removed from office. Revolutionists have no tolerance for romance among their leaders during critical moments. They place the revolution far above personal relationship. From the beginning, they looked with disapproving eyes upon Kolontai's infatuation for Dubenko. When Dubenko was released, Kolontai went abroad and spent some months in Sweden. On her return, she threw herself into a new work, that of educating her own sex to take an active part in politics. All right, I have to pause here and interject because once again, Brian is wrong. Kolontai resigned from her post as Minister of Social Welfare because of the appalling terms of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. I don't think it had anything to do with Dubenko, but certainly this makes a better story. And I'm guessing that this was the scuttlebutt in Russia at the time. And this was the story that Bryant heard and then relayed. But it's quite interesting because every biography that I've ever read, and I believe Kolontai's own diaries make it very clear that she resigned in protest of the terms of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. All right, now back to Bryant. Rightly speaking, there never was a woman's movement in Russia until after the revolution. Also not true, but that's okay. Equal suffrage came first and political education afterwards. This condition appears particularly curious when one recalls that during some years before the revolution, even more women than men were sent to Siberia for plots against the Tsar's government. Yet when the revolution came, women sank mysteriously into the background. Russians explain this by various theories. 
One was that Russian women possessed the fervor necessary to martyrs, but little of the balance needed for practical reconstructed work. Personally, I think it is entirely a matter of experience and education, for it is evident that women enter politics everywhere with great hesitancy. Even in America, where equal suffrage has been a fact in some states for many years, we have only one or two women to point to as having attained political prominence. Madame Kolontai possesses much charm. She is slim and pretty and vivacious. With a little too much the manner of a public speaker, she talks so easily on any subject, even to reporters, that it almost gives an impression of insincerity. Her open mind is in reality an evidence of the kind of sincerity which has no fear of publicity. She likes Americans and knows more about this country than most Russians, but she has not always known. Some years ago, when lecturing here, she happened to be in Patterson during the great strike there. When she saw the workers marching through the streets, she rushed into a room full of people and exclaimed, a revolution has begun. Last year, in speaking of America, she said it was the country least agitated by revolutionary thought. Like all enthusiastic communists, she follows Lenin's lead in striving to westernize Russia. One day, she very greatly surprised me by saying, why don't you write a series of articles about America? Write for Russia about America as you now write for America about Russia. What good will it do? I asked. A great deal, she replied. It is time Russia got acquainted with America. Because of the old censorship, we never learned the value of reporters. And now that we are through forever with isolation, except when it is forced upon us, we ought to acquaint ourselves thoroughly with other countries. The woman ought to know, for example, how American women got suffrage and what part women take in public affairs. We ought to know the status of the immigrants, how you solve your unemployment problems, the status of farmers, of city workers, the percentage of wealth controlled by rich people. We ought to know about your schools and colleges. It ought to be explained to us just what the real difference is between the Republican and the Democratic Party and how much influence the Socialist Party has. Yes, there are a thousand things we ought to know. I did not write the articles. But in explaining American ideas and institutions to Kolontai, it somehow placed my country in a curious new light in my own eyes. I began to realize that things which have grown quite ordinary and familiar to us may appear entirely absurd and unreasonable to foreigners. Kolontai said that she hoped Russia would someday have reporters in America cabling home as busily as our reporters do from Russia. Russians, she thought, have in so many ways remained ridiculously provincial in spite of their ideas on internationalism. Her feminist heart was deeply touched when I told her about a group of American women who had paraded on Fifth Avenue carrying signs of protest against the blockade. Tears came to her eyes. You can't imagine, she said, how much courage such a little act of sympathy gives us. What a pity that the story of those women is not known in Russia and not read by every peasant mother. She was openly indignant about the stories circulated abroad that Russian women were nationalized. When we first discussed this rumor, she refused to believe that anybody in America could have seriously considered it. But when I explained about the Overman Committee and other official and semi-official affairs, she flew into a rage against the narrowness and prejudice of some of our statesmen. 
She claimed that the simplest peasant would not believe such indecent lies against American women. Your senators, she said, could very well have acquainted themselves with the real facts about our women, who have always taken such a glorious part in every movement for emancipation. American men, continued Madame Crollentai, are known the world over as kind and chivalrous, but chivalry can be a little old-fashioned in this century. Certainly, there is much to criticize and much to improve in our new struggling republic. But have you ever thought how absurd it was that the very much pampered American woman was forced to picket the White House as part of a campaign for equal suffrage, and that for such acts she was sent to prison? It is more absurd also when you remember that at that very moment, a Southern gentleman sat at the White House as president. Naturally, such things appear inconsistent to us, but we manage to see them in the right proportion. We know that in spite of these inconsistencies, Americans are a generous people, a heart friendly to Russia and the world. Another time, she said, when revolution came, we obtained equality for everybody who was willing to work. Don't fail to comprehend what a stride that was. We didn't have to have a civil war to free the Tartars or the Turkomen as you did to free the Negro, and it certainly never was in anybody's mind on any side to disenfranchise Russian women, much less to nationalize them. Nevertheless, Madame Kolontai finds even a revolutionary government can be run too largely by men. If it does nothing worse, it has a very bad habit of overlooking women. But it cannot overlook them for long while Madame Kolontai is about, for she never fails to appear at the important congresses to remind the delegates of their sins to goad them into discussions of women and women's problems. Women's congresses, she told me, are absolutely necessary in the present state of development, and these congresses are not confined by any means to politics. I have been bringing peasant women to Moscow from all over Russia, and we have told them how to take care of babies and how to prevent disease. We have also instructed them in local, national, and international politics. A woman who has gone to Moscow from some remote village is more or less of a personality when she returns, and you can be sure that her journey is an event to the whole village. She always goes back well supplied with literature and educational posters. She, naturally, stimulates an interest in the whole community in politics and hygiene, especially among the women. Such congresses are the only ones I know that have a far-reaching effect. Madame Kolontai's political judgment, even from the standpoint of an orthodox communist, is often very bad. She has unlimited courage and on several occasions has openly opposed Lenin. As for Lenin, he has crushed her with his usual unruffled frankness. Yet in spite of her fiery enthusiasm, she understands party discipline and takes defeat like a good soldier. If she had left the revolution four months after it began, she could have rested forever on her laurels. She seized those rosy first moments of elation just after the masses had captured the state to incorporate into the constitution laws for women which are far-reaching and unprecedented. And the Soviets are very proud of these laws, which already have around them the halo of all things connected with the Constitution. It is almost impossible that that institution, which came to life through her enthusiasm and determination, will ever cease to be. 
The laws I refer to are particularly those in regard to expectant mothers, orphans, illegitimate children, and the state care of maternity hospitals known as the palaces of motherhood. Madame Kolontai is about 50 years of age and appears much younger. She has dark brown hair and blue eyes and could easily be taken for an American. She is one of the few women communists who cares about her appearance. By that, I do not mean that she enjoys any luxury. She lives in one room in a Soviet hotel, but she is pretty and knows how to wear her clothes. I once complimented her on a smart little fur toque she was wearing. She laughed and said, yes, one must learn tricks in Russia. And so I have made my hat out of the tail of my coat, which is already five years old. She comes from a well-to-do middle-class parents, and her first husband, while not rich, was an officer of the old regime, able to afford her a good deal of comfort. They had one child, a son. As a young girl, Kolontai went to the best schools, and after her marriage, never ceased to study. She is an unusually gifted linguist, speaking 11 languages and often acting as official interpreter at the Soviet as well as the international conferences. Periodically, Kolontai attacks family life and claims that it is the only institution that communists are afraid to reform. One needs only to look about at the leaders of the movement to wonder why they should be concerned in reforming it. Lenin leads a distinctly normal family life, as do Trotsky and Kalinin. The wives of these commissars work and are interesting, well-known personalities. Kolontai herself is married. Her inconsistencies are her most feminine trait, as well as one of her most alluring characteristics. All right, so that is an abridged version of the chapter by Louise Bryant on Alexander Kolontai, a special gift to the listener from the Chicago Teachers Union. And I just wanted to say that there's obviously a ton of mistakes <laughs> in this because, in fact, Kolontai did not go to school. She was t- tutored at home by governesses, and she did have an excellent education, but it's not as if she was sent off to school. So Louise Bryant has taken some liberties, I think, with Kolontai's biography. But nevertheless, it is a, a fascinating reflection. And clearly, Louise Bryant, who was herself, as I said, a very prominent American feminist, at the time, living a very unconventional life uh, in an open marriage with John Reed. She obviously looked up to Kollontai and clearly found Kollontai a kind of contradictory and fascinating character. So a little snippet from history written in 1923. And thank you all for listening. I may take a couple weeks off from the podcast because it is summer and everybody needs a little vacation. I, I don't know if you can hear that, my, that my, my basset hound in the background is trying to get in on the podcast, do a little cameo performance. Hello, Daisy. You want to say hi? <laughs> I don't know if you can hear her. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And as always, keep up the good fight. Yes, it's time for food, isn't it? Stop. Oh, I'm not